today, a D.C. Circuit Court ruled that President Trump doesn't have immunity, that he actually has to face the charges in Washington, D.C. Now, this is what we discussed earlier this week. Uh, we talked about the delay that was going on regarding his trial. And ultimately, I mean, they're saying that he has no immunity and the claim of immunity is just not valid here. It's disturbing, but it was expected. I think most of us kind of figured this was going to land on this side of things. And ultimately, now President Trump now has to kind of rely on the Supreme Court to weigh in all of, all of this. And it's interesting because we know that D.C. has been trying to push this. And we know Jack Smith's office has been trying to kind of prioritize this and speed things up a little bit. Uh, ultimately, their goal is to interfere in the 2024 election, like we've discussed previously as well. And, well, they're trying to make sure they get their way. I want to bring in somebody who knows a lot about this because he's worked formerly for President Donald Trump. Let's bring in Jeff Clark. He's the former U.S. DOJ double assistant attorney general and senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. Jeff, thank you for joining us. This is the first time we have you on our show, so I'm very grateful for that. Well, I'm glad to be here, Brianna, and glad to, uh, to be here on the early days of your show as well. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. Now, the ruling came out earlier today. The decision came out earlier today. And ultimately, it, it sets a precedence that could be perceived as dangerous. What do you uh, make of all of this? Sure. Well, look, um, this is a very serious issue. And all I really hear from the left is the idea that uh, there is no explicit constitutional immunity for presidents, uh, especially after they leave office. And uh, look, there are lots of immunities that are just creatures of case law, that are creatures of judge-made decisions. So, you know, in my role at the Justice Department in, in multiple litigating divisions, going back to 2001, when I first joined the Justice Department in the Bush 43 administration, and also in the Trump administration, you know, it was very common for me in terms of lawsuits that were brought against the government to assert something called sovereign immunity as a defense. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is basically an argument that the government can't be sued unless it gives its consent to be sued. And that is not something that exists in the Constitution. Uh, it is something that has been created because it goes back to uh, ancient common law that uh, the king was essentially, uh, you know, not to be sued unless uh, he agreed in some capacity to be sued. And uh, we've continued that tradition and while there are uh, waivers of sovereign immunity, uh, and also states have sovereign immunity too, and they can waive their uh, sovereign immunity uh, in, in uh, under the Eleventh Amendment, um, you know, it's it's a situation of that immunity has been recognized even though it doesn't explicitly exist in the Constitution. So the president's lawyers have argued that. You know, uh, you know, the same here for the president. The president has to have immunity for his official acts while he is in office, as long as he is colorably acting within the span of his authority or what the Supreme Court has called on the civil side, because there is clear case law created immunity for the president in civil cases within the, as long as he acts within the outer uh, perimeter of his function. And so the argument would go here that anything that the president did to look at investigating the 2020 election, uh, arguing that it was illegitimate, argued, arguing that it was flawed, arguing that it was marked by irregularities, all of that is within the span of his office because he is the chief magistrate of the United States. 
So in this D.C. Circuit decision today, which comes from two Biden appointed judges and one Bush 41 appointed judge, Judge Henderson, uh, they have rejected that and they have essentially tried to set it up for a rocket uh, appearance uh, right up to the Supreme Court. And uh, let me pause there, Brianna, and see if you have questions before I describe how they've tried to game the system to get this case up to the Supreme Court as soon as possible. Well, actually, that was going to be my follow-up question, because it, it, like we've been telling our audience, that's what they're trying to do. The ultimate goal here is to interfere in the upcoming election. So I'll let you take it away and continue to your next point. Sure. So look, um, my colorful way of describing this point is, uh, you know, over the weekend, uh, or just before the weekend, Andrew Weissman was on MSNBC, along with uh, Neil Katyal, who uh, you know, was saying that uh, they're both freaking out about the fact that they didn't have this D.C. Circuit case uh, yet. I think it took about 55 days to today to get it. Uh, obviously, they didn't know it was going to come out in just a few days. Either that or they reacted to what Andrew Weissman tweeted, which he reemphasized in his MSNBC appearance, you know, uh, snap a doodle. Uh, the D.C. Circuit needs to wake up and get this case done fast uh, and uh, deny Trump immunity. Well, obviously, we know that the left wants to deny Trump immunity because they want him to be subjected to a criminal trial before the election. But the snapadoodle point is the point that really makes me uh, sit up and take notice, which is the idea that this must absolutely positively be uh, decided so that President Trump can be tried before the 2020 presidential election in November. And there's really no basis for that. A case like this with the stakes that we're talking about in terms of whether there is presidential immunity on the criminal side, it's a question of first impression for the Supreme Court. It's a question of first impression for the D.C. Circuit that just decided today it would not be unusual at all for a decision like that to take months and months and maybe even as much as a year. So what that is not compatible with uh, is not ordinary judicial timetables. What it's not compatible with is the political timetable of the Democrats who want to try to knock Donald Trump out of the running because they're afraid that if he's the candidate, uh, he'll return to the White House starting on January 20th, 2025. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what they do fear. And ultimately, listen, if they're saying that he doesn't have precedence, uh, like if he doesn't have any immunity with this ruling and this decision, that ultimately when he does get back into the White House, he could possibly do the same thing to Joe Biden and potentially Barack Obama. Do you do you I know he said that he if he were to get reelected that he wouldn't do this. He's got too many issues that he needs to fix. But ultimately, could this decision be applied to going after President Joe Biden then? Sure. And look, let me put a footnote in how they're really trying to speed this up because it's a little bit technical. But let me answer yeah. your, your current question, which is, um, you know, look, this is something that uh, the judges on the left are starting to realize that, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So let me use an example of what happened with Mark Meadows' uh, removal case in the 11th Circuit, right? That's, you know, the, the circuit that covers Georgia. So he removed his case uh, down there as one of the defendants in the Fonnie Willis uh, prosecution, which, you know, in full disclosure, I'm one of the defendants of as well. And I've also removed that case. My appeal is in an earlier stage than, than Meadows. And, you know, Meadows removed that case. He lost at the district court stage and he lost at the 11th Circuit panel stage, three judges. And 
uh, they ruled for the first time, as they acknowledged in, you know, uh, uh, more than a century and a half, uh, you know, almost two centuries, that the statute allowing federal officers to remove does not apply to former federal officers. It only applies to current federal officers. And that prompted two of the judges, the Democrat appointed judges, uh, to basically recognize that this was something of an emergency. They voted, I think, because it skewered uh, Trump and, and skewering Meadows, I think they see is somewhat equivalent or by transitive property like screwing, uh, uh, you know, Meadows helps them do that, um, that, uh, you know, he could not remove. But they realized that, look, you know, it, it, that could mean if the Biden administration ends, that all of the Biden administration officials suddenly would not have the power to get out of red state or red city prosecutions that are brought against them uh, for things they did while they were in the Biden administration. So they were saying Congress might want to look at fixing this. Now, I don't think the law really needs to be fixed. I think the decision's an error, and that's what Mark Meadows is arguing. That's what I've argued. But that's an example of the fact that they see that this could have a boomerang effect. And the immunity point, as you just made, is the same thing. If uh, you know, they can't just say that Trump lacks immunity, right? That if Trump lacks immunity, if the president lacks immunity, then any president lacks immunity. Uh, you know, if any statutes of limitations were still live, you could go back to the uh, to Obama and reexamine his actions, and uh, he would potentially not be immune for things he did while he was in office if uh, criminal actions or other kinds of suits were brought against him. Yeah, we have a tweet on the screen right now. Uh, it's it's involving it's a part of the section of the decision today, which ultimately cites uh, Bill Clinton and the Paula Jones ruling. But that was a civil lawsuit, and the interesting part in that that was before those were allegations before he became president. So they're citing that, but that was before he became president. So ultimately, uh, this just seems to be reckless at this point. Um, I don't I don't understand why they would cite that. Uh, but I do have a question for you, Jeff. Uh, ultimately, sure. if the Supreme Court rejects taking up this immunity uh, challenge, where does the president go next? Because they don't have to take it up, is my understanding, correct? That's right. Uh, this comes up in a posture called a petition for a writ of certiorari, which is another ancient common law term. So it means it's part of the Supreme Court's discretionary docket, which is the vast majority of its docket. So in order for the Supreme Court to take the case, four out of the nine justices have to agree to take it, uh, but they're under no obligation to do so. So, you know, and you, you don't, uh, unless there are dissents from denying cert, you rarely get a count, right? So you usually just get an order that says cert denied, and you don't know what the internal vote was. Did it fail by one? Did it fail? Did they get no votes? Um, so it is possible that, that, that they don't grant cert, but I think uh, that uh, they will grant cert in this case. It's too important yeah. and uh, it's too novel. And, uh, you know, they realize that it has earth shattering implications. If the president gets tried uh, before the election, that could be enough election interference to change the outcome of the election just standing by itself. And, you know, I don't think they're going to let this go forward, uh, you know, with with a precedent from the D.C. Circuit, because that's people often think of it as that's like the court just below the Supreme Court. It's sort of, 
you know, all the circuits are equal at some level, and there are 13 of them, uh, one through 11, and then the DC circuit, and then a, an unusual circuit called the federal circuit that deals with things like patent law. Uh, but the DC circuit stands a bit above them because of the nature of the cases it takes uh, and its jurisdiction, and the fact that a lot of its judges uh, get promoted to go on to the Supreme Court. So I, I think this is too important a precedent to groundbreaking an issue. I think they, they are going to take it. The question will just be when. And I, I also think in terms of the lawfare strategy, uh, Brianna, that they're trying, the left is trying to overload the Supreme Court with cases. They have the, uh, the Colorado case uh, and other potential cases trying to keep Trump off the ballot. They have this fight about uh, a criminal statute about obstruction, obstructing an official proceeding, which fully comprises half of the Jack Smith indictment in D.C. against President Trump. If they took this one, they'd have this one. I think what they're trying to do is hope that one of those uh, uh, three uh, Hail Mary passes, I think, for them at this point succeeds. Uh, and um, they hope to sort of use up the Supreme Court's capital I, I also think, you know, looking down the field at a fight about whether the 2024 election is above board, right? If it becomes necessary for President Trump to challenge that election in the courts, they want the Supreme Court to be so weary, so tired of Trump-related cases where they have to come in and, and set the lower courts straight that, uh, that they just throw up their hands and say, you know, you're on your own and they uh, deny uh, cert, just like back in 2020, uh, in December of 2020, they denied review of the Texas case joined by like 17 other states that Ken Paxton filed to try to get review of the irregularities in the 2020 election. It's interesting that you say that because I actually didn't think of that strategy, but it makes sense. Ultimately, yeah, you want to overwhelm, overwhelm the Supreme Court so that they don't take on other cases that are extremely important, like the one you just cited, potentially. Um, it, it's just, it's so heartbreaking when you think about it because this form of lawfare is only being practiced on one side. It's not being practiced yes. by Republicans. Democrats have mastered it completely. What can Republicans do to push back? Because I think that's really critical here. Well, here, I think, you know, we can support the president and, you know, I, I, I'm self-interested in this, but we can support other targets that the left has lined up. Uh, people like John Eastman, people like Rudy Giuliani, uh, you know, people like the uh, the alternate electors in Georgia uh, and people like attorneys who represented President Trump or represented, uh, you know, others who are trying to get to the bottom of the 2020 election that, uh, you know, this 65 project and other groups like Crew have launched litigation against. And there's another group in, in Boston called LDAD, um, lawyers defending something or other. And they're trying to get lawyers who are conservative and who uh, want to see election integrity disbarred. So we have to fight against that. I'd urge your viewers to make contributions uh, to to uh, to help support that fight. But if President Trump does return to the White House, uh, and you know it's not something that, that's prevented from the current Congress taking it up, I, I just would suggest that probably the Democrat Senate at Ch uh, Senate in, in Chuck Schumer would block it, is I think we need new laws. I think we need a new uh, venue law that uh, moves venue out of DC to potentially even a new court in the center of the country in, in two major areas. One is if you come to DC to protest, 
in a in a uh, publicly uh, permitted First Amendment protected protest, uh, and it turns out that you are accused of uh, some crime or some other uh, infraction, that you should be tried back in your home district, the district that you came from D.C. to D.C. Uh, you know, uh, as a temporary visitor, where your real peers are, not in D.C., which is you know more than ninety percent Democrat and not very sympathetic to conservatives who want to protest. They are only sympathetic, it seems, to Antifa and, and Black Lives Matter and causes like that. And those people, for that reason, you know, get off scot free even when they engage in far worse behavior. And the other category uh, of folks who should have the ability to change venue, uh, and this is where potentially a a newly created court could come in, is any uh, officials who go to serve, you would have to make it neutral, obviously, in any administration, would have a venue option to be tried either, you know, in their home state or to, you know, stay in D.C., if conduct that they engaged in while they were in office was brought into question. That would, both of these things would help avoid massive bias against uh, the conservative side uh, and just make things a lot fairer. Uh, and, and here's an example of you know, using current law. I just happened to read today a motion that David Schaefer, one of the alternate electors down in Georgia that Fonnie Willis is pursuing, he filed a motion to change venue and he wants it changed out of very deeply blue Fulton County, where it is currently, to basically a 50-50 county in, in Georgia on the theory that that would better guarantee that you would get a fair trial. It makes a lot of sense. So that mechanism also currently exists to move venue in D.C., but none of the D.C. judges have granted it, even though I think the bias against the January 6th defendants is extreme. Uh, and so that's why I suggest that I think if there is a new administration with a new Congress with Republican control of the Senate, I think we need new legislation, Brianna, to establish that. Yeah. And the Constitution says that they have a right to an impartial jury. And these judges are gripping onto these cases, like you said, and not letting them leave the venues that they're in right now because they know why. Uh, it's just it's so it's heartbreaking to me because I've seen so many J6ers as they try to make those arguments in front of a judge, think that at the beginning stages, think that the courts would rule in their favor since it's common sense that they can't get a fair, ju- uh, fair jury in Washington, D.C. And then it's like a slap in the face when the judge rules against them because it's the Constitution. You would think that they would abide by it. But unfortunately, um, it just doesn't seem to take place like that right now. Before you go, Jeff, I wanted to get your take on what's happening with the Supreme Court this week. Uh, they're about to take up the 14th Amendment case in both Colorado and Maine. Those are both of the states that are trying to boot him off of the ticket, as many of us know. What do you make of this? What do you expect from this ruling? Do you think that it's gonna they're going to uphold getting uh, President Trump removed from the ballot? I don't think that's going to work. I think even the left recognizes that that's uh, even less than a Hail Mary pass for them. But they like the fact that it just keeps in the news this mainstream media narrative of Trump engaged in an insurrection, Trump engaged in an insurrection. And I don't see this point made frequently enough, but it's a really key point. Uh, How did the Colorado Supreme Court and then the, the trial court before it that the Colorado Supreme Court affirmed, how did it find that Trump engaged in an insurrection, right? There was no real trial. What they did was they took the January 6th committee report They said that that January 6th committee report was reliable 
And then they adopted the facts. And then in order to provide some patina, some veneer of fairness, they brought in the chief investigative counsel that uh, Nancy Pelosi and Benny Thompson had handpicked, uh, this guy, Tim Heafy, a former U.S. attorney. And, uh, you know, he was asked, like, was this a fair process? Did you guys have an open mind? And of course, he's he says yes. And that was enough for the Colorado trial judge uh, and, you know, the majority on the Colorado Supreme Court to say that's good enough for us, good enough for government work. Ergo, President Trump engaged in insurrection. It all traces back to this very corrupt, politicized, monolithic January 6th committee, which, as you'll remember, uh, you know, uh, uh, then uh, majority, uh, uh, you know, uh, leader, I'm sorry, minority leader in the House, uh, uh, McCarthy, refused to send members to because Nancy Pelosi wouldn't seat Jim Jordan, uh, you know, and others on the committee. So it was a totally stacked committee. And Heafy can't really bless that. He, you know, that was allowed. But, you know, anyone with a modicum of common sense and, and fairness would say that was not a fair process. President Trump couldn't cross-examine the witnesses. I couldn't cross-examine the witnesses. John Eastman couldn't uh, cross-examine the witnesses. Yet, you know, it's supposed to have produced this ruling uh, that uh, President Trump engaged in an insurrection. It's a real farce. It would be the easiest, you know, at, at some level and most logical for the Supreme Court to say uh, there was no insurrection. I think they may try to stay away from that uh, because that kind of gets their hands dirty with the facts. I, I suspect it's more likely that they say that President Trump isn't even covered by the 14th Amendment, which is a topic and the main defense I've written about, or that it's not self-executing or that President Trump was already uh, acquitted of insurrection and acquitted of a section three of the 14th Amendment violation because the second impeachment against him, that was the sole article of it and it failed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I hope I hope you're right, Jeff, because what they're doing is just an absolute disgrace to this country and we need to put an end to it. We shall see. Jeff Clark, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your insight as always. Now, as you just heard, Jeff Clark is one of the many Fulton County co-defendants facing the persecution of Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. He's also being persecuted by the D.C. bar as well. He's not only just a good uh, a friend, but a great American, and he is taking on a lot right now. This is a man who stuck his neck out for this country and offered to simply uh, investigate claims of election fraud. And I've told you guys before, there are other FBI agents who I've spoken with directly who wanted to investigate these claims as well. Uh, they were getting tips, but they were shut down. And one of them was that I spoke to was actually forced out of the FBI. So ultimately, this is a big machine and it is coming after Jeff Clark and he's a great American and he could use all of your support. So if you head over right now to his gifts and go page, it's the Jeff Clark legal defense. He'd really appreciate anything that you could throw his way, guys. He'd really appreciate it because they're trying to destroy this man. And as you just heard from him, he is a great patriot, a great American, and he deserves all hands on deck with this massive legal battle he is taking on. If you enjoyed that interview on Rumble, make sure you hit the subscribe button and make sure you give us a thumbs up. And if you're watching on YouTube, well, why? YouTube is coming after us. I've told you guys before, they've already given us a strike. And well, we didn't do anything wrong, of course, but that's how YouTube works. So they might new our page and you probably want to stay in the know. So head over to briannamorello.com and go down to my Substack page and make sure you enter your email. If you want to be added to my newsletter, it's free and I won't spam you to death. So make sure you head over there 
or download Rumble and sign up for us there too. It's a free speech platform and it's very important to support free speech platforms. And if you're watching on any of the podcasting platforms, guys, make sure you give us a five-star review and we always appreciate it when we get your feedback. So make sure you leave a comment in the comment section, whether it's on Rumble or any of the podcasting platforms, we read it all. So please let us know how we're doing. We'll be right back with more of the Brianna Morello Show. I want to let our audience in on a little secret. I'm saving hundreds of dollars each year after switching over both of my lines to Patriot Mobile. Yes, so now my business and personal line are with Patriot Mobile. Now Patriot Mobile uses the same towers that you're probably already using now, except it's less expensive. So my 5G towers that I love to use my old provider, I'm still using them now. I'm just paying significantly less money to do so. And on top of it all, Patriot Mobile believes in the same things you and I believe in. They have the same morals. So they donate to causes that are like pro-life causes, veteran causes, and even the NRA. It's incredible. So I highly recommend you head over to PatriotMobile.com right now. Take a look at their plans and sign up. And today, if you sign up and use promo code Brianna, they're going to waive the activation fee. Yes, you heard it right. They're going to waive the activation fee. Just make sure you use promo code Brianna, B-R-E-A-N-N-A. And if you enjoyed that segment, make sure you hit that like button. And if you want to see the news before it becomes the news, you have to subscribe to our channel. And well, if you have a liberal friend that you're looking to save, make sure you share this content with them.